head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he was the power broker all along. It's Andy Greenwald! Did you know that? Did you guess? I did. It was me? I thought that the, the graffiti in Madripoor very, it resembled you a lot. It, it was you. very much your brand. What's going on? It's Monday. Uh, Andy and I are here to talk about a number of things. Of course, Mayor of Easttown, our beloved darling Mayor of Easttown. Episode two, we will be discussing that. We'll be talking about the finale of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Oscars and some of the uh, trailers that came out during the Oscars or around the Oscars. We're just going to just generally kick it. Chris. Oh, you got an interview, brother. At the end of the show. The Andy Greenwald show is back. It was the Andy Greenwald podcast. Why did you call it that? Did you, were you just like, because you were like, there might be a different Andy Greenwald show when I like host a late night show. So you wanted to have the differentiation? Yes. Okay. I didn't want ESPN to own that. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Um, you, you know, Pitaro is just like, I'm, I'm still holding on to that Andy Greenwald podcast IP. We're going to audition some people to host it. <laughs> but uh, I did, I, I had the, the pleasure and privilege of interviewing Michelle Zahner, who's a great musician and director and writer who records as the band Japanese Breakfast and just published her first book, a brilliant memoir called Crying in H Mart. Yeah. I'll set it up again when we get to the end of the show. But if you like indie rock, if you like Top Chef, if you like reading about food narratives, um, if you just like reading piercingly honest memoirs from about loss, maybe there's a Venn diagram of someone who I love all, all those things. things. I'm your I guy. Know. Yeah. Anyway, sure. it was a great talk. Thrilled to have Michelle on the podcast. And that's at the end of the show. So that's something to look forward to, something good and positive. But we have to start with well, something one, one, one bad and negative, right? Bit a, one other bit oh, of no. housekeeping is that Wednesday... We are dropping the first of our Bureau deep watches, our deep dives. So Wednesday, we will be talking about the first two Guys, seasons. Chris is trying so hard to make Fetch happen. Chris <laughs> coined that term while we were recording you our Bureau podcast. coined it. I said it was a good idea. I didn't coin I just was using an adjective and a noun. And you were like, get Pitaro on the line. We're going to lock Andy this with down. Bomani Jones. <laughs> first <laughs> Let's of all, start a talking. Win, a win for everyone. Let's Second, start talking for all mankind, finally. <laughs> trademark deep watch anyway i stepped on you yes we we did it we recorded seasons one and two yeah awesome and i, I really enjoy talking with you about that i usually don't say that about our own our own work i try not to be self-aggrandizing but it was you. nice it was refreshing to get deep on something like that so we talked about the first two seasons there's a lot of general conversation about it we're going to try and piece those out at basically one every two weeks and so we'll do one, two, we'll do three, four. We're going to do five and maybe a mailbag and five and maybe a mailbag and maybe an interview, depending. Maybe we'll have a guest who also loves the Bureau join us. We've, we've got some feelers out. So 
very excited about that project. It's really nice to have something like that running. So Wednesday. Uh, so we have three watch episodes this week. So mm-hmm. congratulations to you guys and congratulations to us. Congratulations to producer Kaya for producing all of it. Uh, let's get into our conversation about the Oscars. They should have hired Kaya McMullen to produce the Oscars because they made some big mistakes, okay. I would say. And Kaya would not have uh, made those mistakes. Go off, King. Um, no, I mean, look, this is... It is really a head-scratcher. It really is a head-scratcher because I think going into this Oscars, there were a couple assumptions that were proved to be true. The number one assumption was that this was going to be, no matter what they did, the lowest-rated Oscar telecast of all time. Now, the main reason for that, and by and we're recording Monday morning, the numbers just came out, It it is by an outrageous margin, the lowest-rated uh, Oscar ceremony of all time. But the reason, the main reason why everyone knew that it was going to be the lowest rated Oscars of all time was the same reason why every event or especially every award show over the last pandemic year has been the lowest blank, fill in the blank of all time, right? It's the shows are going to be weird. They're going to be different. They're going to be a little bit zoomy at times, although the Oscars were not that. And so maybe it's an opportunity to reinvent things or try something new. The other thing in uh, that the Oscars were up against was because of the pandemic year, it was a very strange crop of movies and nominees. Not strange pejoratively. There were some great movies this year, but some of the expected big ticket movies with big movie stars were held, right, or delayed Mm -hmm. until this year or even beyond this year. Also, people simply didn't always know how to find or see the movies. They, you know, we talk about we, we've been talking about how it's actually kind of cool and great to be able to watch Nomadland on Hulu pretty soon after it's released, quasi-release in theaters, or that Judas and the Black Messiah went straight to HBO Max so we could watch it right away. And then you can, but, like, order a couple of bars of soap from Amazon and be like, I wonder if Fern packed this. Exactly. If only <laughs> you can get a branded Fern bucket that's right. uh, for your van that's made in the Amazon facility at the beginning of the movie. Um, so people were a little confused. And what totally boggles my mind, and maybe you can help me unpack this, is in a year when you know going in, most of the people who are going to tune in to your award show, even if it's half the number who tuned in last year, a lot of them are going to be very unfamiliar with the movies uh, nominated. Why would you go so far out of your way to not show them anything from the movies? Do not even make the case so your for the team clips. I know if people had a chance to listen to the excellent big picture podcast from yeah. last night, Sean and Amanda went through this. And obviously, Sean is a very I, I agree with him. I don't know necessarily that it is the defining like take I have from the show, but that like the absence of contextual footage of performances was was a huge mistake. It was especially a mistake in a year when by circumstance and also to a degree by choice, the entire show was smaller, right? Like they, as as Regina King said at the beginning, they were running it kind of like the way Hollywood productions have been running, which means a lot, a lot fewer looky loos, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, I thought it was very smart, at least in theory, that Soderbergh and the other producer Stacy Sure put it in LA's beautiful Union Station. Yes, LA has a beautiful train station, and you all got to see it. Well, very few of you apparently got to see it on display last night. But the show felt smaller. In some ways, it reminded me of, you never see like the grainy footage of like the 1931 Oscars where Bob Hope opens an envelope at a hotel bar and they put it on the radio for 10 minutes. Like they were like, and and then that's it. And then everyone, I guess, you know, 
ate black beauties and drank champagne until dawn. <laughs> Sm- but smoked opium all night. Yeah, whatever. It seems yeah. pretty great in retrospect. But it was this weird collision between the Oscars being what they used to be when they were on radio and also trying to be the Golden Globes because everyone was just sitting at tables. But it was the worst of both because they also made these bizarre decisions never to leave the room, which they could have done with clips that would have reminded us that movies in a year like this can take us out of our homes and living rooms. Mm-hmm. And also, no host. I know that people were very upset about some poor host choices in recent years, but guys, shows need hosts. I don't know who is learning the wrong lessons from the last few years, but Regina King being like, well, this is funny, right? I guess we're going to do this. That doesn't fill me with confidence. She walked in with confidence, reached the stage, and then tripped, which I feel like was the perfect metaphor for this entire evening. I don't know where to start here. So... Yes, the lack of clips, I think, ultimately went against the grain of what you want from this show, which is a giant celebration of the movies. I think you can celebrate the movies tastefully without making it hooray for Hollywood yeah. and having and, and, like the rockets come storming down like Hollywood Boulevard. And, you, you, know. you guys have 10 years of podcast evidence of me being like, we know your movies, act like it. I am, yes. I am very happy that there weren't like, you know what was great? Westerns for like 30 <laughs> minutes in the middle of a four hour ceremony. Like that has never made sense. I like that shit, but that's fine. You know, like I, uh, look, I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the Soderbergh element of it. So sure. I thought that this was what you get if you hire Steven Soderbergh to make the Oscars, which let's just take a quick 10 seconds backward trip. They hired Steven Soderbergh to make the Oscars. That's wild in and of itself. A few days ago, we were like, this is going to be great because they hired Steven Soderbergh to make the Oscars. I wouldn't say it was great, but I wouldn't say it was terrible. I think that what you get when you get Steven Soderbergh is intimacy, verve, creative energy. I think there was a sense of visual style and a visual, like, an imprint on the show that wasn't there before. And I also think that that guy likes to experiment with shit that is very important with people. So mm-hmm. when he takes on something that is, whether it's a genre film or whether it is an award show, it's like 85, 86% straight. And then there's going to be that 14% where he's like, what if I did this? Or what if we did this? Or what if mm-hmm. we tried that? And some of those, what if we are going to work out and some of them are going to be moving best picture to slots earlier and having it end with Joaquin Phoenix doing Joe Bluth. You know what I mean? Like that is a, (laughs) uh, (laughs) this is, I hope that Steven's agents at CAA or wherever he's repped are hearing this because I want your speech played verbatim in the room of any producers, insurers or studios that Soderbergh works at the future. They're like, look, here's what you get when you get Steve. No, I love Soderbergh. Look, this the, the, was like, the I, worst Oscars in history, and it's not even close. <laughs> it's not even. It, it is not even. You so can't you're a make big an fan argument. of Bob Hope on the radio smoking opium and being like, "Yes, burn again." Yes. First of all, you're selling me on that too. It's not even close. That like, do you remember when everyone was like, David Letterman made a joke about Oprah that went on too long? Burn him. Like everyone involved in this should be memory hold. This was atrocious. This show awful. last night, you're really that mad? God, it was bad. Okay. It was just, it was unspeakably I bad. I thought they did it the best so that they could. Awkward. I thought that they, like, I legitimately thought, like, they, they look, outside of, like, what movies got rewarded, what upsets there were, whether or not I liked Mank more than I liked Nomadland, it doesn't really matter. I, I think that I understand... Look, what's the right tone to hit in this fucking year? Like, I don't know what Chris, the right... 
speaking of memory holes, guys, the Emmys were good last year. <laughs> Has everybody forgotten that? The Emmys did this in September and they were good. And were there weird jokes about like nasal swabbing Jason Sudeikis? Yeah, there were. Yeah. But they were good because they were still like, well, the world sucks, but we have trophies to give to famous people. And then that was fine. Sure. Now, <laughs> it was just so poorly conceived to cram this odd guest list into a room and then just walk away. I mean, it, it there were moments when it felt not just sparsely attended, like literally no one was paying attention to the show. <laughs> it just kind of, it just felt like, like here, here, here's an analogy, Chris. I know you love boat movies, uh, right? I do. Can you imagine if, like, if you went out on a boat trip, not like on a rowboat, but maybe you were on vacation somewhere and you like, you and your buddies, you rented like a, or you bought tickets for like a catamaran ride to go scuba diving. And so, Is this in the remake to another of another round that I'm in? <laughs> this does sound good. At what point, so then they're like, now we're going to park the boat here. I don't know how you park boats. You Drop anchor, anchor them? Yeah, whatever. Right. <laughs> and you guys can go scuba diving and the bar's open. How many hours would it be before you realized that no, the people who were piloting the boat had left? That's uh, what it felt like. <laughs> That's very specific. Uh, my point is, sensation. you seem to be like, I love water. I love boats. <laughs> There's an open bar. I, being a, maybe perhaps a more nervous sort, noticed the pilot paddling away early early i guess so but i i you know what the thing is is that like i this is not something that i was particularly enamored in 10 years ago when 35 million people were watching the oscars where i was like what i love doing is watching a five-hour show with 17 musical performances 43 monta you know like 43 strange like like this guy's gonna walk up on stage and tell me how accounting works like i'm fine with the fact that it was like a different kind of show it's been a different kind of year i'm sure it will be like different next year when killers of the flower moon and soggy bottom and all these other movies are there and like we've got dicaprio and de niro there and scorsese or whatever like it's gonna feel a little bit different i you know i i think i had like a sort of a bad feeling when i woke up on sunday morning and my entire twitter timeline had decided that nomadland was green book and i was just like it seems like we're going (laughs) into this thing with the wrong attitude everyone needs to ratchet it down a little bit that is true that it is just it is fundamentally movie twitter is so weird to me that someone woke up on a sunday and was just like hmm not enough people know the thing they like is bad (laughs) send like you you are right and i want to be appreciative of this which is the oscars generally rise and fall with the quality of the movie and also the the access to star wattage that doesn't mean all good movies have to have mega stars in them it does mean that one of the things that makes the oscars a good tv show is that the, it has a lot of big stars in them and so that was never going to line up and i agree that you had to take some chances in order to account for that generally you know, one of the things that I think makes the show appealing, or at least it always did for for me and probably for you as well, is that there's a sense on movies' biggest night that it is still a company town and there's a community of, mm-hmm. and people are welcomed into the community and the community grows and, you know, is talking to each other and overlapping with each other and people other than Laura Dern are around to talk about how much they like movies. Like, that's generally the feeling. And that was just not in the cards this year because these are the movies they got. This is the circumstances they were making the show in. I get that. But I do think that there could have been decisions made to remind us. And I, I realize I'm, I'm, it almost sounds like I'm talking myself into saying there should be 
more montages about why Westerns are good. I'm not saying that, but I do think that there were creative opportunities to remind us why. That would, if I had directed the Oscars, it would have just been like, why Westerns are good, <laughs> a thread. <laughs> Regina <laughs> King would have rode in on horseback That's right. in the opening moments. Um, you know, like, it's did just you see remi- the fucking outlaw Josie Wales? Holy shit. <laughs> What if, you know, those years where they're like, and now we have someone like talking as the nominees walk all the way from the back, you know? Yeah. What if it was you just riffing on movies that you loved from the 60s and 70s? My God, guys, I checked out Hurt Locker for the first time in a minute. Damn, that holds up. I would watch that. But there, I think that they could have tweaked the show in the direction of the larger world that movies are part of, the larger community, what it means, and also like it's still going. You know, it is still a vibrant thing. This felt sealed off like a mausoleum to me. It was part of the I, way. It was how shot. much of that do you think was necessary because of like the restrictions put around it? Like because they were trying to shoot it with the fewest amount of people in that room. Yes. No, I agree with that. But I also think they could have done. I mean, they could have. They could have. They, they they made a choice and they were committed to it. One of the choices would have been to make it more of a show in which they could have done field pieces. I mean, they're the Oscars. They have tons of money. They could have. They could have done filmed things, which may have taken us down the road of we're just here to give away the trophy. So I'm not going to relitigate that decision. It might not have been the bad one. But I do think showing clips of the movies so we can bask in the performers or watch mm-hmm. them, watch themselves or watch the other people watch them. The perf- the best song stuff in many years, I think, is not my not not generally not my favorite part of the program. I agree. They kicked it out of the broadcast this year and did it before, which Didn't I think it. was a weird choice for this year. Didn't but miss it. it the other thing that tends to happen when you pare things down is that the choices you do make with your time are become a little more, they're under the microscope a little bit more. And so Lil Rel being like, Andrew Day, have you ever heard of Prince's Purple Rain? Like that was six minutes. It's just weird, right? That's just like the bit is dying from the minute Lil Rel picks up the microphone. And then everyone in the room has this rictus grin. At least Sorkin... You know, we all know my feelings about Sorkin, but Sorkin wouldn't even crack a smile. Sorkin was like, we're just going to have to endure this and I'm on camera. So, look, it it was just really weird. And we haven't talked about the biggest weirdness, which was, you know, Steve S. It's just like, no, we're not going to do things the way we did before. Weirdly, Soderbergh was like, best director, let's do it early. (laughs) Maybe he checked out at that point. But then he decided not to do best picture last because I guess this is either charitably a night about stars not movies in a year like this or more likely let's end with chadwick boseman winning an oscar posthumously so everybody can feel good about the narrative yes probably a moment where i i I would love to know whether or not they would like to have a a mulligan on that one yeah i would think they would well because now the the, now that the word is i don't know if this is accurate was that apparently there was a there was a contingency plan if this happened where Olivia Coleman was going to accept live from London on behalf of her co-star Anthony Hopkins. And what happened? And Joaquin Phoenix just didn't give a shit. And was like, just like he didn't understand we'll just... like throwing it to Olivia Coleman. Well, he he entered into the room with the largest amount of IDJAF IDGAF, sorry, energy yeah. I've ever witnessed. And he was just like, "I they want me to say something about acting, but I don't know anything about it, so here's some awards." And then just like wanted the night to be over. It was incredible. I mean, I hope, I imagine by now someone has run. What do you, the, can I ask the, you something? Want, someone do, should run the Veep music over the end of that Oscars. Do you think that, so, like, I, this is a really weird, because we usually don't get into the psychological motivations of incredibly famous people who play the Joker, but do you think that that's a case where he should have just been like, I actually, like, 
loathe public speaking and don't like appearing in these things. And while I really appreciate I won the Oscar and have been nominated before or whatever, like, I can't do this. You should get Denzel Washington to do it or something. Like, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, do you think yeah. it's incumbent upon the people who are participating in the award show to actually, like, have more Glenn Close energy and be like, I'm happy yeah, to I be mean, here. I'm happy to put on a show rather than be like, this is fucking terrifying for me. Because let's just think, be, let's charitably say Joaquin Phoenix is like, I'm very anxious. I don't like doing this. Yes. Why, uh, why and, have him back clean up at the Oscars then? Well, I just think it's a series of cascading poor decisions. I think that you're right. I think generally the people who are brought in to be the cast members of the TV show of the Oscars should be people who want, want to, to do razz- razzle and dazzle. Right. Um, then the next piece of it is every year when they make an Oscar show, it is a delicate balance, let's be charitable, between new thinking and razzle-dazzle and the tradition that people come to expect. And one of the traditions that people come to expect, and I think generally like, is the tradition of the previous year's acting winners passing on the award either to their successor or to the reverse gender yes, of the right. category, which right. has been more traditionally the case recently. So I'm sure Joaquin Phoenix, as someone who is grateful he won an Oscar, as someone who does like other performers, is willing to engage in that piece of the tradition. And mm-hmm. then when he showed up, they were like, so we're doing things a little bit differently this year. And that's probably when it started to go a little bit sideways. I mean, Joaquin just needs to check his email. I can't imagine that was like a sprung on him kind of thing. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. But he still also either agreed to do it or said that he would do it within reason. And I'm sure there are many wranglers involved and maybe even Big Steve had to give him a call. I, we're not sure. But it's not his fault that the truly, you know, not randomly voted on, but secretively voted on awards didn't give people the narrative that they wanted. And by the way, this is the tradition also. This is not the tradition. This is the collision between Oscars, a TV show that happens once a year, and the Academy Awards for motion pictures voted on by the membership of the Academy. Mm -hmm. Because they're not the same thing, and they're never going to give you exactly what you want. And I mean, I I guess I'll just say this. Like, it would have been really, Chadwick Boseman, an absolute tragedy and a brilliant performer who deserves Oscars, broadly speaking, absolutely without question would have given us more performances deserving of Oscars. I would say that the people on Twitter who are calling for the assassination of Anthony Hopkins, what percentage of them watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Or, this or specific the specific movie right. that, yeah. that he was nominated Well, right. this is sort of, I, di- I did think that this was a strange year where a lot of famous people, at least relative to like our understanding of fame, I think, with it and in the movies, a lot of famous people were nominated for in fa- like not famous movies. You know what I mean? Like, or in the case of Glenn Close, like awful movies, actively bad movies. Sure, right. So, uh, I I do think that that was strange. You had all these people in the crowd that have been like that person's been in Marvel movies and this person is a huge star and blah blah blah. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know that necessarily. Like, you know, I had kind of hoped that Judas would have a little bit of like a run here at the end of the campaign Mm -hmm. because it was so readily available because it is like kind of a crime movie. Like it's like, if you watch it, it just Mm -hmm. feels like a kind of eighties Oliver Stone movie. It's like, or or a Sidney Lumet movie. I I don't necessarily think Judas and the Black Messiah was a better movie than Nomadland or a better movie than Minari. But like, I thought it was a good Oscar movie. You know what I mean? And that is like, that's the kind of thing that I think that this year lacked was... I totally agree with you. And I think that's really smart observation because I think that Nomadland 
whether or not you agree that it deserved to win Best Picture, its arc from the traditional Oscar season when it would have happened in the late fall until now probably played out similarly to how it would have played out in a quote-unquote normal year in that it would have sure. made a small debut in theaters. It would have been brought to a place like Hulu early where more and more people would have found it. And it always would have been not a tough sell, but a more challenging sell, but one that deserves the attention and you know probably would have ended up where it ended up. I think the difference is a movie like Judas and the Black Messiah, which I really loved, felt smaller than it ought to have. And I don't want to say that's only because it was on cable, essentially, that it went straight mm-hmm. to HBO Max because we're going to see in the years ahead how you know the, the the reduction of the theatrical window affects things or the streaming stuff. Our friend Sam Esmail is always saying that it doesn't matter. People are going to see the movies. But the combination of a movie like that being shunted into the small window that not every, that, sorry, the small screen that not everyone necessarily has access to, but also the, the essentially the blackout of the red carpet stuff or the general press tour that would have put Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield and maybe Jesse Plemons or Dominique Fishback or Shaka King, the writer-director, in front of us all the time. Those guys, it's not everybody, just that Everybody good knows movie. Plemons is Entertainment Tonight candy. They love okay. Plemons. Let me take Plemons out of that equation. But what I'm saying like, is... Is that Jesse Plemons courtside at the Lakers? <laughs> Lance, did you kill the guy? <laughs> I feel like I feel like Plemons courtside at like a Thunder game would make more sense. But to your point, it is a entertaining movie, and Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya are superstars with electromagnetic energy, and they are going to be in this conversation of Oscars, of red carpet, of late night shows, of what are they doing next for a long time to come. And the show is missing that kind of crackle that a movie that ought to have been a little more Hollywood in the best ways could have provided to it. I mean, we're always going to, and we're lucky to have movies like Nomadland and Minari that are are able to elbow their way into the conversation. They should be there and they're always going to be there. It's always going to be a little bit of a harder sell, but as with something like Moonlight, like you get it there, you get it over the finish line and people will see it. But I just, I really like what you're saying about that movie in particular, because that could have, that's, that's kind of one of the main things we were missing. That's yeah, what I was feeling. I mean, I I don't know. I think that I refuse to pronounce the Oscars dead. I think the Oscars are just like a departed away from being back. You know what I mean? We're just like a big and maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm uh I don't know, willfully optimistic about like the revival of like the sort of Hollywood a mainstream Hollywood drama that becomes an award sensation or something. But like to me, it just feels like we're like one of those away. You know what I mean? Like it just needs yeah. something where it's like that's fucking Leonardo DiCaprio or that's who Denzel Washington. What a great movie! Way to go, Steven Spielberg! You made West Side Story and everybody loved it. You know what I mean? And, and I want to talk about that. And I agree with you. I do want to just take a moment to say that like Daniel Kaluuya winning an Oscar is awesome. He's he's just such a interesting performer and interesting guy, and that was really exciting. And I thought also that um, Yunya Jung winning Best Supporting Actress for Minari was also awesome because she is incredible in that film. And those are the, you know, those two awards represented the kinds of things that I think the Oscars can do really, really well, which is anoint the star of tomorrow and also elevate someone worthy that most of the people watching had never seen. And to your point about like being close to it coming back. Yeah, I'm not, I don't think the Oscars are over. I, I would be surprised if there isn't a resurgence in a lot of these award shows next year, hopefully, or later this year, when we can do them properly again, because just doing them properly will feel like an exciting celebration. But it, it, you're, 
I think that the little things that this night, that the nature of the night robbed us of was, for example, uh, Yoon Yoo Jung winning and, ma- and being delightful and talking about Brad Pitt and kind of flirting with him. And then some people were accusing her of like intentionally tripping coming off the stage so Brad Pitt would catch her. Uh, I feel like that's a little bit of a stretch. But at the same time, if he was allowed to be standing next to her mm-hmm. and they were interacting and then he took her arm and she was like, oh, how nice. That's a TV moment. That's the Oscars, you right. know, and that little bit of enforced separation not only robbed us of the moment, but you felt the awkwardness of being denied it. And I think that that is, I, I'm I'm over potentially overly negative about just how lousy I thought the night was because you are probably right to just say these little fissures are what sank the whole thing, and they're not necessarily the brilliant director of Out of Sight and the Knicks' fault. <laughs> Why don't we take a break and we can come back and we can talk about Mary Town. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, Andy, we're back. Before we get to Mare, let's talk a little bit about West Side Story. Only because, Chris, you were watching the Oscars a little bit before I was, and you, because you Uh fucking love Hollywood, (laughs) you were like, I am considering applying to membership in both the Jets and the Sharks. We'll see how it shakes out. You know, you're not, you're not ideologically That would be a classic um, Le Bureau move. It's just yes. kind of like just, you know, a little bit of Israel, a little bit of France. You know, you never yeah. know. Um, Why not? Shit, dude. Uh, look, I am a pretty big sucker for just like some Steven Spielberg movie magic. I, I'm not trying to say that this movie mm-hmm. is presumptively going to be the best picture winner of next year or that, it, you know, we need a new take on or a seemingly classical take on West Side Story, but just sheer image making. I just, mm-hmm. I was, I was quite moved by seeing that and kind of, um, you know, I think there's a lot of movies that I'm sure will be like thought of as the return to theaters movie, you know, mm-hmm. like they've moved things around a bunch. I mean, the, the Bond movie has moved several times because I think it wants to be that movie that makes a billion dollars in international box office and is the sign that we're all back in movie theaters. Also, there is no streaming service that's going to pay a billion dollars for fucking one to, movie. to Barbara Broccoli. Yeah. But the movie that probably symbolizes a return to movie theaters to me or a return to like that kind of experience is being in a theater on, on an opening night to see a Steven Spielberg movie with cascading generations of people in a theater eating popcorn and having their wigs ripped off by like roving cameras and Tony Kushner's screenplay and these people singing and dancing. You know, I mean, I'm not even like a West Side Story head. You know what I mean? Like I know the music and it, and and I've seen the movie, but I'm excited for this. I don't know why. It just really tapped into something for me. It's incredible. And it's very generous of you considering your longstanding beef with the film star Ansel Elgort. <laughs> that you are being so gracious <laughs> in supporting him in his future endeavors. The Voldemort um, of this podcast. The So I'm of two minds. One is it looks beautiful. And I completely agree with what you're saying. Like the thing about Steven Spielberg, really good at directing. <laughs> really, really good at directing. And that hasn't changed. And 
I think just purely from like, everybody knows I'm a classic cinephile, but legitimately you give him something that is tried and true to turn his camera on and have fun with. And you get already in this trailer, there are just some really breathtaking yeah, iconic when all imagery, the, like all the, the shadows. The women are running down the street, sashaying their dresses. Like I was just like, holy shit. Or the shadows <laughs> going on top of each other. Like yeah. I can't wait to see that in a theater. You're right. I got to say, yeah, just a little bit, a little bit concerned, Trolley. About? This is a podcast. This is the safe space for this. I feel a little conflicted about how... You're worried that West Side Story might be Amazon propaganda. What about the East Side Story, is what I'm saying. <laughs> for too long, we've lived under... No, it's that it... Okay, I'll, I'll say it this way. Recently... My wonderful children have discovered, thanks to the Wizards of Disney Plus, that their favorite film that they love to watch, The Lion King, not only has a bunch of, you know, a couple down market and one surprisingly clever sequel that were never released and thus are not canon. But I think I mentioned already that Lion King, one and a half. Rosencrantz yeah. and Guildenstern are dead. Very yeah. clever. There's also what they have started calling Lion King Real Life. And Lion King Real Life is the John Favreau computer movie from two years ago, where Donald Glover and Beyonce take on the iconic roles of cartoon roles of Donald Glover, accepting the mantle from Matthew Broderick. What a wild, 90s were wild. They're like, who can be young king of this African savannah? <laughs> Ferris Bueller. Get me Bueller. <laughs> and I have now seen some of that movie. Mm -hmm. And I say this with love and respect for all the many talented people involved and all of the millions of people around the world who have enjoyed it. But it makes me concerned about the viability of art in the future. You got to have a fucking glass of milk and chill out. It is. <laughs> These are so, different things. So disturbing and like soul deadening because just because they can do it, it makes you understand, want to know why they did it. It is like, yes, now we can make Rafiki the baboon his, his bristles what, fur. What will does this blow have to do with West Side Story? <laughs> but we already had a movie where the monkey was like, This baby lion is the king. And everyone was like, Great. And now we're going to sing a song. What I'm saying is, now you, it's, it's just weird to me that they're like, Finally, 60 years later, we can truly recreate New York of the 1950s and just tell <laughs> the story that's 70 years old. That's all I'm saying. The, the presence of Tony Kushner uh -huh. actually makes me excited that they wanted to do this for a reason other than the fact that the movie is a little bit dated, although pretty good, and they could just make everything look better. Do you get what I mean? There's a sense of like, it, there's something about it that felt so loving and crafted and intentional, you know, that is basically, and, that, and, and when you have an artist like Spielberg and his collaborators, and they are artists, they can do that, and they certainly mm -hmm. can make people happy doing it, but there was that weird feeling of like, but why are we spending all of this time looking backwards and just making things a little bit shinier? We haven't seen the movie, but that was the feeling it created in me. Where it's just I think that Steven Spielberg is only able to look backwards or forwards. I don't really find that he is uh, particularly. Great point. Look at you, Chris. Well, no, I mean you he should, is not you really go much on movie podcast. He does That's not chronicle right. the present. He does not account for you know what is happening point. outside of our windows. He's either going and celebrating the greatest generation or talking mm -hmm. about you know like. Or he's, or he's in the really near future or like late future where either, you know, dinosaurs are real or E.T. has arrived or we have a mm. close encounter or, you know, basically whatever, you know, like AI or minority reports, some of the darker ones. So I'm not really 
it doesn't surprise me that Steven Spielberg would either do one or the other here. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like the guy has got like what five more movies in him, or maybe ten. Like I don't know, given his pro- how prolific he is. I, but I, I, I would say t- I would take the over. I'm here for this. Like, I, I, and I mm-hmm. honestly also do think that you know, yes, does Hollywood have a tendency to grave rob itself and just be like, look at what we used to mean to this country and kind of like real Frank Sabatka, we used to make shit here kind of energy. Mm -hmm. But part of what makes the like American movie tradition, I think special and what makes it so full of possibilities is its ability to celebrate its greatest achievements. And I know that West Side Story is probably considered more of a musical theater success than it is necessarily a movie success. But celebrating a great American achievement like West Side Story as a musical is, is I think, beautiful. And I, I hope that he brings some, you know, contemporary sensibility to it while also obviously honoring what what it means to people and stuff. But I, I don't really give a shit. I'm really excited to just I, see those songs and the choreography and the colors and the camera movements. And I just cannot imagine this being a bad experience. I love, I love it. You've made a brilliant <laughs> case and I'm excited. I think that I am... Still, and will be for many years to come, unpacking the legacy of Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One, as we talked about it the other week. Like, there's just this feeling of, yeah, like, I know, I know, just, we can do it now. So let's just give it to him. That makes when are we paying? Like, when does the line, the line between paying tribute and just being like, like let's let's trot these corpses out here again is is big. Yeah. Can I can I or say thin. that this my behavior over the last five minutes did make me want to shout out? Um, there was a post that I saw on our uh, watch Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Where someone was calling out that I guess in a movie draft, you you with Sean and Amanda, you said that you respect the Beatles, but you're a Stones guy, mm-hmm. which which I think is very valid. And someone was like, "That makes me nervous." Do you think Andy is a Beatles guy? And someone like big comments energy, like right off the right off the jump, was just like, "Fucking Greenwald will say he prefers the Kinks to both." Do you? I just love. Be- I f- I feel really known. D- is that I just the truth? Feel so seen. Do you like the Kinks more than the Beatles and the Stones? No, but I just feel like I I feel like that person. That is the kind well. of thing you would say. I think you're a Beatles fan. I do love. I lo- no, I like the Stones more. Do you really? That's mm-hmm. that's why you and me, you and me. I do like Stones. You more. and me and fucking Kate Winslet. That's how we get down. But also <laughs> the three of us. Yeah. But uh, just a bunch uh, well, of Delco brats listening to Exile. But also, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Just sipping Yingling lagers. I don't know if it's. I don't know if this still exists generationally, but. Like my parents had my, my my dad couldn't care less about either of these bands, but my mom loves the Beatles and like had meet Meet the Beatles was on constant rotation growing up, so those songs were just in my life. And then the Stones was more of a a journey for me. Mm-hmm. I dig that. I dig that. Uh, let's talk about Mare. Yes. So uh, an amazing drama that had a crime tacked onto the end of it, and first episode becomes a crime show that has some drama underneath of it in the second episode. I think that in the first episode when I talked a little bit about uh, the broad churchy vibes of this show or like how this show could indulge in some broad churchy vibes and there's a lot of ways to, to kind of discuss that. This is what I was talking about. I had seen the second episode before we started talking about Mara. So I am caught up. I have not watched ahead. So you don't have to worry about me unwittingly spoiling anything. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess I wanted to start with this. Did you notice it being... Well, did you feel like it was a different show because it was probably more of a criminal investigation show this week. And well, how did you feel about it? What did you think? I was even more impressed after week two, which I was nervous about because, as you said, I, like you, I am just watching week to week. 
Um, and, you know, we, we came in pretty hot with our love week one. The second, ep- second episodes are the hardest in any uh, style, I think. Um, and I'm totally gobsmacked and impressed by how this creative team rose to the challenge. The, I, you know, I, now I see what you were talking about because the opening of this episode does kind of do the, the, broad, the broad church whisper down the lane grief train. Uh, where people find out about this horrific news. And yet, the show is so brilliantly written and envisioned and performed that it doesn't feel pro forma. It doesn't feel uh, like anything you've seen before. Everything feels contoured and suffused in a very, very specific, not just sense of, of place, like we've talked about before, but of a particular sort of grief and melancholy and relationship to difficulty in life. And I was really, really stunned by it. There are a number of tonal shifts in this episode, you know, from the heaviness. I mean, it's generally heavy. And it's so, it's, there are moments of heaviness and just devastation and sadness and, and, and random tertiary characters who we've never seen before this week are granted moments of terrific grief, you mm-hmm. know. And there are moments when they're affecting me coming out of left field where I'm suddenly feeling, I mean, I'm, I'm very much vibing emotionally with the show and it's knocking me off my feet sometimes. And I'm like, but, but I usually don't like this sort of thing. But it so effortlessly keeps its hands on the, the show. The, the creators, Brad Inglesby and, and Craig Zobel, like keep their hands on the rudder. And all, of course, and it, it none, it's nothing really without Kate Winslet's performance. So that I, I feel centered with them. I feel centered in a world that isn't just misery porn. This is just a truly horrific thing that is part of a world in which horrific things happen. And other things happen too, if that makes sense. And that is such a difficult balance to strike. And I remain totally impressed by the show's ability to navigate. So something really interesting happens in the first episode where it does feel like everything, with, with the exception of the Guy Pierce character, everybody's relationships are kind of in their second act you know, or third act or whatever. You know what I mean? Like you feel like you are joining this town already in progress. And that's my favorite kind of experience where you're getting dropped into a world and you're being asked to make sense of it, but you feel confident that that light down there at the end of the hallway is going to lead you somewhere and you're just sort of feeling around. And this episode's slightly different because it introduces the Evan Peters character, Colin. And he is the traditional fish out of water character that prompts all the other characters to explain what's going on to someone because they don't know. They don't know why this person's mad at her. They don't know why this person might be like this. And so I respected the fact that there was like a little bit of TV making going on. Mm -hmm. But what I just couldn't believe is like still how deeply felt it felt despite that, you know, and, and they did not dumb the show down for the Colin character. They didn't, they didn't slow it down for the Colin Mm -hmm. character that they were able to still have moments of levity in what is like an absolutely brutal episode of television from the the two bookends. And they're able to show like moments where like, you know, you're really, I think kind of emotionally connected to the characters in a way that is very rare. You know, I, I, in all the way across the board from, you know, Gene Smart's character going to visit, um, the mother of Kate Winslet's grandchild, mm-hmm. you know, in this sort of obviously like a halfway house kind of situation to, I don't know, I guess like e- even that montage of like the kids talking about the night before party that is played for kind of laughs. You know yeah, what I mean? And the music goes in a different direction as well. At that yeah. Like I just thought like 
it never lost its its rhythm at all. So even though you introduce a new character mm-hmm. and a new kind of component where you might want to slow down and you might want to say like, well, Colin, like this is what happened. Mara was inter- like investigating this missing mm-hmm. person and it didn't work out. And it turns out it never slows down for him and he has to keep up. And he has to, and, and I thought that that was really, really well done. Yeah, there, one of the things that makes this show such a pleasure to watch and talk about is that you can talk broadly about what it's doing well. And they're also, it's also very possible to pull out individual moments. Yeah, and I mean, the case, we, we, the scene with talk, Winslet and the, and the doctor, the pediatrician was one of them. That's one of those scenes I'm watching that and I'm like, she is an actor on a different level. Than yeah, and that's, that's the, that's the coolest thing I thought. Like, I was just like, this is, this is like watching. LeBron or something. This is like watching. <laughs> it is. It, it, it is transcendent how yeah. good she is. And it's really exciting. But for me, the moment is when Mare is about, she's gotten dressed up and she's going to go travel to the other TV show that sometimes airs while this one is on, The Richard Show. And we're yes. going to talk about that. Yes. And she's confronted in her driveway by Deanna's first father Bri- and Brianna's. mother. Brianna. Brianna, I'm yeah. sorry. Right. And it's, crazy and they're yelling and they're cursing and they drive away and you're you know you're expecting your mind is conditioned to be like is she going to drive into the other truck is there there's just we're, we're we're so conditioned to expect certain kinds of collisions metaphorically to lead to literal collisions none of that happens what happens is gene smart yells at brianna's mother for a minute and brianna's mother just basically lets out a primal yelp of anguish and then she's like come on in right that's the show right that's the show that is the tenor of the relationships between people that is how quickly uh, the narrative, but also life can ricochet from one extreme to another. And it also speaks to something that I, that I wanted to point out, which is uh, when, so in writer, in TV writers' rooms, there's a couple, many terms that come up again and again. Um, and sometimes maybe you've heard me use them or, or other people, showrunners you have on the show use them. The one that I wanted to call attention to is Tiny Town. And when you are plotting a drama and you're like, yeah, well, the person that the detective could run into at the supermarket, uh, or let's just say what we're saying, <laughs> the, she'll run into the mother of the dead girl who's working at the gas station. Yeah. And then the other people, someone in the room will look up and say, tiny town. Like, it's preposterous. Like, the town can't be that tiny that everyone involved in it is crucially enga- involved in the, 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 the plot. This show could be called Tiny Town, but it's a triumph. And I think because it is aware of the the potential cliche of it or the potential pitfalls of it, and instead that is the DNA of the show. It is about a town that is quite literally too tiny. It is way too involved in itself and each other's business and way everything is just incestuous. And by the way, I think everyone fell for the misdirect that we thought the show was going to be quite literally incestuous in another way. We can come back to that when we talk about the plot. But it takes something that could be a criticism and I think turns it absolutely into a triumph. It You feel how corrosive that proximity is at all times and how fraught every relationship is. And so then when we join um, Colin, or as I like to call Evan Peters, uh, Topher Grace wearing a, a diver's weight vest, just adds gravity. When he sees Mayor making mistakes, basically, mm-hmm. but not mistakes because she's a bad cop, but mis- mistakes because she is a fraught, overwhelmed, and emotional human being, we can absolutely understand his eyes, right? Because he's like, "You're going to do this. You're going to you're going to light a match 
in the gas factory at this Italian restaurant, which, by the way, I don't know how the location scouting, everything about it. That restaurant, a million percent, the, has the a restaurant disused is cigarette perfect. machine in the back. I also you need know to it. tell you that the casting of Brianna, it's, oh it's a, 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 an actress named um, Mackenzie Lansing, who's also in The Deuce. And if you've grown up anywhere within, like, I think a 50-mile radius of this place, you have met someone like Brianna Rasso when you, like... She is the battery thrower. You know, she is the person who somehow has like a boyfriend and a loving family, but will be the person outside of the bar who's just like, I know why your kid killed themselves because you're a fucking bitch. Like that character is so authentically Philadelphian. I cannot get over it. But also like the way she looks and acts is so perfect. It is like, it is unreal. But go ahead. I interrupted you. No, no. I I, I feel that way about about all of these actors, like the guy, the actor who plays, um, I'm, I'm struggling with the names, the actor who plays the father of the baby or the supposed Dylan. father of the baby. Dylan. Dylan, I mean, this this comes, it's not just the writing. It's not just the performing. You have to give credit to the direction here too because there is a desire, even if it's an unconscious desire, that everything kind of shifts towards cleverness. You know, I, I'm very guilty of this in everything that I do, but I think most productions are too where, Actors want their characters to be avatars for something, right? And to be good at something and mm-hmm. to, to pop. Writers want to give good lines to everybody. Directors want to showcase actors to the best of their ability. Dylan's whole thing, the way that he carries his body, the way that he flashes his indignation, you know, in the scene with with Mare, in the scene with his parents, certainly. It, it's a triumph of restraint and letting him be just kind of what he is. You know what I mean? He doesn't have to be special. I think there's something kind of, it, that. as I'm saying it out loud, it, it doesn't really sound that revolutionary, but I do think there's a desire when you're making a TV show or making a movie, you want everything to pop. Mm-hmm. And in a place like this, if you're trying to have some level of verisimilitude, like things just aren't going to pop. Things don't pop that much, which is probably why Richard's swanky book party in the house from Get Out was just like a little bit of a bump for me. But So I, I need to ask you the most important question. This is not whether or not Frank Sheehan's paternity of Aaron's mm-hmm. child is, is a red herring in terms of whether or not he's like mm-hmm. a, a suspect in their, her murder. What do you think Richard Ryan's maze landing is about? Thank you, first of all, <laughs> for this gift. This is the National Book Award winning novel by the Guy Pierce character. Okay, so there are a couple things, I'm not sure is my first answer, but there are a couple things that I think we can safely assume. One is that there is a tough-talking prostitute with a heart of gold. (laughs) There is a woman, probably I want to say her name is Roxanne or Roxy, who has fallen on hard times. This book did Um, win the National Book Award, though, so I think it has to be, like, it must have literary aspirations. Yeah, she's not... That's true, because in the history of American literature, there is no precedent (laughs) for men writing books about sassy, wise, sad prostitutes who help the main characters and potentially die in the third act. You're right. You caught me. I know that she's there. Okay. Okay. I know that there are many sentences describing the vistas of the Mountain West. I know that to be true as well. Okay. There is probably a chapter about roping something. I'm not sure what. So you're thinking this is like a real like like Thomas McGuane, mm-hmm. like like early Richard Ford out west vibe. Yeah. See, I think it's way more Independence Day sports writer, Bullet Park Updike, last like 
aging white male novel under the line. Like this is about a he got away with it. Ve- he, he squeezed yeah, it in the last thinly one. veiled autobiography, like memoir about like mm-hmm. probably a professor who like leaves his wife for a younger woman or something like that. Like that, I I feel like that's what this is. Yeah, about. but Roxy is at the bar, you know, chain sure. smoking parliaments. And then, right. like, she's probably really wise. And then Maybe, one you know day, it, it our main kinda, character I bet comes it's in like, and she's not there anymore. I bet it's like Wonder Boys. No, because this guy doesn't have a sense of humor. We don't know that Wonder, yet. <laughs> Wonder Boys is funny. This guy, no, even if he has one. Oh, he, whether he he's is never, fiction, right. Nothing right. is funny in his books. Okay. Absolutely, no. Okay. No, it, this, this is, this guy worships at the altar of Cormac. You know, I, I, there, I, no jokes allowed. Now, since we're talking about the meta stuff, and I think we want to, I want to come back to the, the overall mystery of the show that we love. We have to, to to say that you know we jokingly last week talked about how, and also jokingly, admiringly, Mayor's daughter's band plays songs by the real life Philadelphia band Mannequin Pussy. Yes, this was and brought to our attention. I think the this this whole phenomenon at least was brought to my attention by our buddy Sam Donsky. Yes, and so then we talked about it and wondered if the band Mannequin Pussy exists in this universe mm-hmm. or is adjacent to it or this band becomes, the kids' band becomes that band. Or if and they were we, just like, these are the songs that we wrote, who right. knows by whom, you know? Or, yeah. Then, much to our pleasure and shock, Missy, the leader of the band Mannequin Pussy, heard our podcast, tweeted about it, and says she has a lot of questions too. Yes. I wonder if she knew what was coming because there is no performed <laughs> music in this episode. And yet, just when you started to lull into a sense of like, I guess this is reality, Mayor's daughter shows up on screen wearing a tour t-shirt, concert t-shirt, purchased at a mannequin pussy show. Uh-huh. Now I don't know what to do. So is this, first of all, are they just fucking with us? Here are, the, here, are the, here are the possibilities, and you tell me which is the most likely. Possibility number one, no one ever has thought about this as much as we have and con- will continue to do. Brad Inglesby likes the band. He optioned their songs for the show. And as a little extra treat to give them more love, made a character wear a t-shirt. I think That's it's totally re- reasonable to think that Siobhan would be a fan of this band that is only about 40, like plays shows in Philly 45 minutes away from her house or whatever. Yet, she is also either the front woman of the region, nay, the world's <laughs> most successful cover band of this band, Mannequin Pussy. Right. Or, I'm going to blow your mind. In this universe, another she- band has chosen the name Mannequin Pussy and has written an entirely different catalog I think of songs. I think it's two. I think it's two. What if... Definitely a bit of one, two. Like, nobody has thought more about this. In fact, I can feel people being like, why have you not addressed like whether or not we think Frank Sheehan is actually the murderer? And instead okay, are okay. on minute three of did Mannequin Pussy break fine. into the Matrix? Okay, fine. I'll, I'll leave it there. Hey, Shouts but you know what, Pussy. though? This is New actually... Song today. New song today. It's perfect by Mannequin Pussy. Good this song. is an interesting point, though. Do you think that that is a secondary, like a lot of the times when we watch these sort of limited mystery series, I think immediately we get pulled into the redditing of it, of like when, mm-hmm. what, like who did it, what, like how, what are the clues, what are the theories? Mm-hmm. Do you think that this show has such an incredibly defined sense of place and self mm-hmm. that that will be secondary? I'm glad you asked that. I want to say yes. I want to say this is, through two episodes, the absolute best case scenario for a show like this, mm-hmm. in my mind. I love it. 
personally, but I also think that it is The only way it could be better is if Hugh Grant was playing the Evan Peters part. Or if Hugh Grant was the front man of a <laughs> band called Mannequin Pussy. I think just objectively, this show is outstanding. I mean, it is a triumph of craft up and down the line. The, the performances, every performance so far is really, really, really exceptional and gripping and consistent. I, and we're, so, we're, we're running long, but can I just say one thing? Yeah. Dave, Dave, like, for instance, David Denman, who plays, yes, you know, and we everybody Frank. knows Roy from The Office, but is, is playing Frank. He was Mayor's ex-husband. What I love, I was trying to get to get at this earlier when I was like this, I just feel like we are joining these people like in media res with their lives. Mm-hmm. Is Mare and Roy, Mare and Frank, sorry, interact with each other mm-hmm. the way the two characters would interact if they had that history. Like the their relationship to one another mm-hmm. actually dictates the behavior to one another. And that kind of like we talked about it in the first episode where he comes over for the oregano and there's this kind of like mm-hmm. She's just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to cross my legs because you walked in here. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to act that happy that you're getting in, you're getting married mm-hmm. again, but I'm also not going to kick you out of the house. But the familiarity with which she approaches him in the second episode to ask if he knows anything about Aaron and that one beat mm-hmm. where she's just like, you're not totally telling me the truth. Why would you know there was something wrong with this woman? But mm-hmm. I'm not going to dwell on this now because you and I have all yep. this other shit between us is what makes this show special. I agree. And the way Kate Winslet plays that moment, you might also have noticed that when she enters the apartment of Aaron's home, Mm -hmm. when they wake up the father, watch Kate Winslet's performance when they enter. She enters it like a cop. You know, her eyes go everywhere. She's taking it in. She's operating on another level. She also brings backup. She brings two guys to hold that guy down because she knows, she she already knows knows that this guy is going to blow his top. I think that the larger thing that we're saying is, this this twist at the end because I don't know if I'm alone in this. I, I'm I'm watching it and I, and I'm starting to assume that there was you know there's there's something it's awful there's incest or something that Aaron's father is the father of her baby. There's something not okay at home. There's something going on there, and that's where we're headed. And then we get this misdirect to uh, to Frank. And mm-hmm. the show is if you watch it closely, it's riddled with these kinds of red herrings. I mean, there's even the moment between the two priests where he's like, we we lost track of her and that one priest who has that moving uh, the deacon who's just the like deacon. yeah we didn't keep up with her i mean there are these lingering moments which are creating more and more red herrings and more and more possibilities that's the, that, that is actually that's, what i mean by the broad churching of it and broad church yeah. would often have david Tennant walking past and like the news agent would be like you you know like say something really do it, suspicious do i don't do even know accent. i can't remember what people on broad right. church talked about but like it would basically be like olivia coleman walks into a bar and the bartender says the most suspicious thing possible and yes. then at the end of the episode, it redirects to a different character who could be a suspect. Right. And then at the end, there's just like a shock. But by making it frank, at least in the first episode, it is kind of like you're taking the air out of it because Frank would have been the perfect twist ending yeah. person. I don't think Frank did the murder, but this is a multi-episode show. I don't think he's going to have be... a great week after this, but yes. No, no. there's going to be a lot of <laughs> secrets left to unfold. And that's the nature of a show like this. But Often, the nature of a show like this is to get the balance wrong and to get the recipe wrong and to over-determine the redditing of it and the mystery of it and the red herrings and the week-to-week and forget about the fact that, and I've said it a million times before, and I've said it on this podcast and I said it in pitch meetings, like, nobody actually cares who did it. We want to know and we're curious and a show will tell us, 
But that is the least important question to answer when you're trying to engage with a large audience over a number of hours of television. You want to give them a world to believe in and to care about and to be drawn into and fat, be fascinated by. And this show is ticking every box. I love it. Let's uh, let's go through Falcon and Winter Soldier now. I, I I'm not trying to rush us through this at all, but you know we have Midnight Boys, the Van and Charles podcast that goes like right after the episode. I thought they did a lovely job talking about the show. I think Mal is talking about it tomorrow. I think with Van. So we have plenty of podcasts that go very in depth about the sort of ins and outs of the Marvel universe, uh, mm-hmm. and you you know like. I, for some reason, find myself very sanguine about this show in a way that I was not about WandaVision, and maybe I need to interrogate why that is on a personal level, but I find that the flaws of this show are fairly obvious, and we talked a little bit about Mm -hmm. how it was pretty clear that there was a lot of reconstruction going on with editing of the plot lines of this show, and, and, and that even if it wasn't entirely a virus plot that got excised, there clearly is a lot of ADR stuff. There's a lot of, like, when did at what point were they like yeah it's definitely going to be emily van camp is going to be power broker or whatever so there's a lot of stuff that you're like <laughs> at what point did they tell emily van camp my bet is they still haven't told her yeah um that being said like i just did, i i think i saw some very mixed reactions to this finale i personally uh thought it had some problems but also was was just i never found my ire raised by it uh what did what did you think of the finale well, I will start by saying this. I think I have seen some people who who I don't really care for their opinions very much be like, "Oh, oh, the, the, the Marvel universe is now woke or whatever." Oh, yeah, fuck. Let that. me tell you something. <laughs> Cancel culture does not exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, John Walker can behave like Brick Tamlin in the Anchorman <laughs> battle, literally kill a guy, and still get a whole new shiny suit out of it. Right. So everybody's coming back. Wanda's fine too. Remember that? Wanda's like mentally torturing people for months. Then it's just like, I need some me time. So I reject that. It's politically more complicated than you may think. Um, I think that this is a weird comment to say, to make about a show that cost a holy fortune, that was incredibly popular all over the world, made pretty significant changes uh, to some established characters in that, that are at the forefront of, you know, multi-million, if not billion-dollar franchises. But in some ways, this show to me was not that dissimilar from what we thought Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was going to be like on ABC, which is Story Spackle. It got this show, I think there were two goals for the show. One was Marvel's overall, you know, uh, Queen's Gambit chess master goal, of we need to set things up in a certain way for different types of stories we want to tell. Mm-hmm. And we want Sam to become Captain America. And that deserves a longer story in order for there to be a Captain America the next time we need one in the movies. And also then introduce, you know, whether it's Julie Louis-Dreyfus's character or establish a few more details of the political landscape post-blip, whatever. And then I think Malcolm Spellman, who's the creator and the showrunner of the show, had some goals. Mm-hmm. And I'm much more interested in those goals. And I think that when the show was also had the the space to focus on them, specifically what it would even mean for a man like Sam Wilson to go on this journey from being someone who grew up in, in Louisiana to becoming Captain America's friend and sidekick to becoming Captain America, that was pretty rich text and pretty interesting. And when the show was able to focus on that, I thought it was at its most interesting. And we never specifically shouted out Carl Lumbly, who's longtime character actor, done a lot of great work, was by the end of it, 
kind of, to me, the heart and soul of the show as Isaiah Bradley. Like, carried himself and the character with such a gravitas that it helped anchor things when it was otherwise kind of spinning out of control. So in terms of the success of those two goals, Malcolm's goals that I'm only guessing at, of course, and Marvel's goals, which I'm also guessing at, I think you could judge it as a success. Mm -hmm. Malcolm introduced a lot of really interesting, if not radical ideas into the Marvel universe, and Marvel got from point A to point B. What I'm not saying is anything about just how it played out as a six-hour TV show. Well, and this is I this think, is the I think thing. that was less successful as far as I'm concerned. You, you know, I was watching basketball last night and as and was flipping around, and I wound up watching um, a little bit of Infinity War. You know, which and I and I realized that I find that these all of these movies are just so much more watchable, almost not only in sort of bits and bites where you're like, you're like, oh, this is on a little bit. I'm going to watch it. Or like, mm-hmm. I was on the Disney app, so I decided to like see where I last stopped watching Endgame or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I like this scene. Or Downey's really good in this. Or like, mm-hmm. cool, like this fight. And then you stop and maybe you go do something else. I, maybe that's sacrilegious to say that. This is a long way of saying, I think that there are two different things. There is talking about the MCU and then there is actually watching it. <laughs> I think I have mixed feelings about both. I think I le- I really enjoy talking about what these shows are introducing or questions that these shows are asking about what we call TV, right? Like how serialized they can be, how connective they can be between other completely discrete shows. Like this idea of taking this 10-year project that they did on movie screens, which was revolutionary in very many ways, and is actually so well done that other huge corporations have spent billions of dollars trying to imitate it and fucking failed. You know, like that is amazing that they have done this over there. And now they are bringing this to quote unquote the small screen, but also to this idea that like people will be captive audiences with these streamers and also want to always have something that's setting up the next thing that makes them think about the next thing. So I'm fascinated on that level. Then I think when I actually watch them, I'm like, at like a 65-70 in terms of satisfaction rate. Like, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It's not bad. But, like, I think I have to admit that I have maybe aged out of caring about some of the stuff that is not in Falcon so much as Wanda, but in both cases, like, Falcon, I think even the fight sequences, I was just kind of like, I was ready yeah. to start hitting fast forward or whatever. I, I So I love talking about these shows. I like watching them. And I think I found Falcon more rewarding than Wanda, even though Wanda was in some ways more subversive, Falcon was way more confrontational and way more like, this is what a reckoning looks like. If we're going to reckon with these ideas Mm -hmm. through the lens of this character and this idea of heroism in America, it might not be the most purely entertaining thing you've ever seen. You know, would you prefer to watch Thanos Mm -hmm. say this is inevitable again? Fine. But like, if there were a couple of speeches at the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier where I was like, honestly, this is the medicine, man. Like this is, this may not be like purely, like sheerly entertaining, but I think that to do it a different way would come up short almost. To quote a musical that isn't West Side Story, Chris, how lucky are we to be alive right now? Because TV and movies are more elastic than they've ever been. And we get to cover it or at least talk about it. And that's kind of fun and exciting and destabilizing and weird. My post-vaccine, my in-laws are visiting. Mm-hmm. Everyone's happy to have grandparents around again. They were like, so can these movies that are nominated for Oscars 
win Emmys now too because they're on TV? I mean, they were they explaining to them. I couldn't do it. Well, no, yeah. these are still movies because so everything is in flux. <laughs> sure, that's where we're at. And I applaud anyone who's pushing the boundaries of either side, from the TV side or the movie side, because that's where we're going to get something new that feels right for the moment. That said, I think Wanda was ultimately more successful because a lot of it was about TV Mm -hmm. and about fitting itself into that box, not just figuratively, literally. And I thought that worked well for the format. And it also made itself, it, it pitched itself as a more emotionally driven story, which tends to play better on TV, um, than, the alternative, which is more an action-driven story, which tends to play better in movies. And generally, one of the, the the secret sauces of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been that Feige and his team, I think, have understood the ratios. And that to make a, ma- a massive tentpole spectacle, you have to have big fights and you have to have the, you know, the, 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 dy- the dynamite go boom or whatever. But you do it at a very, very high degree of awe and spectacle. And it's choreographed brilliantly. And it's you know, it, it's, it gets you partly because you're seeing it on a giant screen and they're spending all the money on it. And then also they do the things that big genre movies have traditionally done, at least that they figured out over the last 30 years, which is you make the villains as interesting as the heroes. And I think that what ultimately sunk Falcon for me as a viewer was that it kind of failed those two tests. Mm-hmm. It was attempting to be in a big tentpole action movie, but the action sequences did not feel as gripping or original and broad as they can in the, in the movies. And maybe that's because there was one or two every episode. Um, so it's immediately going to be diminishing returns. And then also, uh, no disrespect to the performer, but Carly Morgenthau as a character, one of the least compelling in the 10-year-plus project of the Marvel Universe. Not because of the politics behind it, which sounded kind of interesting, potentially because of what was excised, as, as we've alluded to. But especially by the time we got to the finale when they had to settle this, I still don't know what they were doing. I don't know what she was doing it for. I don't know what she stood for. And I found her very uncharismatic in her in the case she was making. And yet the show had to become about settling scores with the villain, even though you could feel deeply that where the writing staff's interests were, they wanted to get past Carly too so Sam could give a big speech. And that was the right call. I thought that Carly could have been interesting in a different show and in a... In a- a show that wasn't trying to do as much as this show is doing. Because you had the John Walker stuff, you had the Sharon stuff, and then you also had the mantle of Captain America and the legacy of Captain America, and you also have Bucky's redemption, and then you also had Carly. So that was a lot for a show to do, even in the longer episodes that it, you know, that it, that this series had than compared to Wanda, for it to do within the five, six hours it was going to do it, especially if you're also going to add in um, Zemo and action sequences that go on for five, six minutes at a time. So there's actually not so, that much of a canvas for them to paint her. Totally. And so what I thought was Carly had interesting parallels to both Bucky and Sam. And if this had just been the Falcon or it had just mm-hmm. been the Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. and maybe there were some appearances from the other, but if it was mostly about Bucky trying to stop someone from going down the same road he did, Mm-hmm. Or Sam trying to convince someone that it's better to be inside than outside the tent and that you should mm-hmm. try to change things from the inside rather than tearing it all down from the outside. Mm-hmm. And trust me, I know because I've seen what this country has done to you know, other people. That though, Either one of those things would have been interesting. To have her be one of three or four things that are happening, even though I can see 
the comparisons between what Walker's doing and what the power broker is. And like, I actually think they should have just revealed power broker way earlier and had Sharon been like a rogue disaffected agent who was running shit from the outside. Because then you have a lot of different relationships basically to patriotism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, you're making a compelling case for how, how potentially you could unite all these disparate strands. Sure. I'd love to find out behind the scenes, was it that it was impossible? Like there were, it, was it a Top Chef challenge where they were like, here are nine ingredients that don't necessarily go together and Marvel is like, you have to use all of them. That's the challenge. Or was it by removing a central plot line as we presume happened, the connective tissue kind of fell apart too because that, you're right, there just wasn't enough room for all of this stuff, certainly for not for all of it to, to sort of ring as clearly as it as it ought to have. We are happy to have a couple of weeks off from this stuff. Eager, I am eager to see what the next phase of, of movies will bring and, I, and you and I, are excited about Loki just because it looks pretty mm-hmm. cool. But my question that I want to ask, as we are getting more and more of this, and we're starting to, because obviously there's a formula even to the Marvel movies, but when you space them out by four to six months, maybe you're not noticing it as much, but now we're getting them in much, you know, we're getting them much more frequently. Is there a Poochie problem in the Marvel universe? And for those who aren't familiar with what I'm saying, Poochie, it's not the Poochie problem you might think. Poochie is the character in Simpsons when Itchy and Scratchy, the show within a show, they're like, we need someone cool and hip. So they bring in a, a skateboarding dog who wears sunglasses to spice it up. That's fine. They're not doing that. Although maybe that's Julia Louis-Dreyfus for us. The Poochie problem I'm referring to is when it's time to remove Poochie from the show, they just drop a frame of animation over it and it's like, Poochie returned to his home planet. And mm-hmm. then they never talk about him again. Because nothing ever really dies not culturally, but within the Marvel universe, everything has to be punted forward to be used again, or at least put back on the shelf. Is there a Poochie problem where at the end of every one of these projects, just when we get a little bit closer to maybe having stakes for once, John Walker gets a new costume. Wanda gets a third chance. Vision's still alive. You know what I mean? The sense that you can go run right up to the line of telling a story in these shows, but ultimately... Someone's got to return to their home planet and be wrapped up before the end. Or, or, or just that thing that was on the screen after the Captain Marvel movie. Wasn't it just like, I, did you enjoy this movie? <laughs> Don't worry. Captain Marvel will be back soon. Right. In I, uh, Avengers. I refuse to redo my monologue about Chewbacca from the last Star Wars movie, you know? Well, but it okay. is essentially that. It is essentially like, I do think that they will have consequences, but I think we are on a once every 10 year cycle with the consequences. I, I also think that maybe we are not the audience for it because I don't know if people are aware of this, but in I saw it in person the other day after reading about it on Twitter. But here in LA, some fans, Marvel fans, have paid real money to erect a billboard saying Marvel resurrect Iron Man Tony Stark. It's actually weirdly grammatically off. It's like, bring Marvel, bring Tony Stark Iron Man back to life. Bring back Tony Stark Iron Man to life. We need a hero. And so it's like, if the fan base is saying undo the most honestly that that is the most successful thing they've done because they yes. did the damn thing he sacrificed and himself for the universe yes right and that and thus not only giving us a great movie moment within that movie but adding some luster to the previous 10 years too because there was a sense of a journey a journeys have to end or else mm-hmm. what are they they're not journeys okay we'll be talking about this for the end of time yes this has already been a megapod can we i'm just gonna segue into this Please interview do. that i did I wish I could say it's not a palate cleanser. It's just a whole new meal. As I said at the beginning, Michelle Zahner records as Japanese breakfast. Fantastic 
artist in her own right. Check out her music if you haven't already. She has a new album, As Japanese Breakfast, coming out called Jubilee, coming out, uh, I believe, end of May or early June. I really love the record. Two singles, Be Sweet and Posing in Bondage, are available now. I thought I was going to end up talking to Michelle more about the album, but I loved her book so much, I didn't. And just to give people uh, a little bit uh, more info about what we're getting into here, a few years ago, uh, M- Michelle grew up, child of a Korean mother and uh, an American father in rural Oregon, and she had her own struggles as like an indie punk kid, rebelling against her mother specifically. Her mother became ill with cancer a number of years ago, and she flew home to care for her mother at the end of her life. And the book is was derived from an essay she wrote from The New Yorker about her complicated relationship, not just to her mother and her mother's culture, which is only she felt was only partly her own, but also to the food her mother prepared. And Michelle is one of the best writers about food out there. And as I say to her at the beginning of this interview, what was so bracing about this book is I think generally food books are really, really evocative and trying to get you to understand the, like, the way the acid pops in your mouth and they're written in a certain way. Memoirs usually are written many years later where the specificity of detail is lessened a little bit. So it's not too sharp or acidic or spicy. This book writes about grief and about banchan, Korean banchan in the same tone of voice and it's really powerful for it. I was really moved by the book. I love talking to her. That's my intro. This is my interview. Chris, bail me out. We got Wednesday. We have the Bureau. We'll be back on Thursday evening, Friday morning with Top Chef and some other special surprises. So you guys stay listening. Andy, thank you. Kaya, thank you for producing. Let's get to Andy's interview with Michelle Zahner. Michelle Zahner, Crying in H Mart, available from your booksellers now. I am so excited to welcome Michelle Zahner onto the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And so I... I, can't wait to talk to you about your new album, As Japanese Breakfast, and specifically about your amazing memoir, Crying in H Mart. But I, I do want to begin by saying, I'm sure you're doing a lot of press, and I'm sure you're talking to a lot of people who confess that they are fans, whether from your music or your writing. I need to, from the jump, say that I became a devoted fan after I read your Grub Street Diet in 2018. Uh, thank you. I'm actually doing a similar thing for Vanity Fair right now, and it, I was actually just thinking about uh, writing that or like this, the style of diary writing is, is kind of like a fun thing. It's a fun assignment to have as an adult to have like the self-seriousness of like, I have to do this, but like <laughs> it's just like monitoring what you're, you're eating. <laughs> People are so interested in everything I do. I must yeah, yeah. deliver, but no, but seriously, I think and I've said this before on the podcast, but I think the Grub Street diet in which a person of note records everything they eat over the course of the week is the single best feature on the internet. And (laughs) yours totally stood out because you are both a cook and an eater and you are completely radically honest. And it read like this blow by blow account of one woman's battle against the limits of her appetite, which I respected so much. (laughs) It definitely is like a big part of my life is like being a small person that eats a lot. I was thinking about it because I ate a lot of like nachos randomly that week. And it's just like any at any point in your life, like you could be like going through something. So I like this new one is like, I just got really into hot dogs, which is like not a normal thing for me. But like this new diary is just like all about hot dogs. People probably are going to think I'm very strange. No, but you also like it's you can learn about yourself by doing it. At that moment, you said you were very into ordering like old man scotches and bars and surprising people. And maybe that that's now uh, like yeah, an artifact yeah. of a I time was in really your life. Into that at the time. Totally. It was. I was like getting really evil for a while uh, every time I did that. So I had to like kind of chill out a little bit. Like it tur- if I have one scotch, it's totally fine. If I have two, I like get a little demonic. Uh, oh. So 
my husband started being like, I don't like it. You, when you drink scotch, so I've like kind of chilled out on it. <laughs> well, it's good. It's, it's like a learning exercise for everybody. Um, but so I, I do want to pivot to the book, which I read and I loved. And um, I guess I wanted to start here because I'm, I'm very used to reading food memoirs, which I love. And there's a requirement, understandably, when writing about food, which is sort of focus on like the sensory explosion of every detail, every mouthful, every bite, which is you understand, of course, because it's we can't taste the food. So you have to make it as visceral as possible. And your book is excellent at that. I challenge anyone to, to who makes it through to not immediately start ordering or cooking as much food as possible. But what I'm not familiar with, because maybe I don't read as many memoirs that are also about grief, is something so weighty and emotional mm. being written about with the same level of tactile intensity. Uh, and I, I have to imagine, and, and the effect is really powerful and sometimes devastating. And I, I have to imagine that that was part of the intention behind it. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I was really propelled by this sense of urgency to tell people or like warn people what happens when someone gets sick and um, what it looks like to live as a caretaker and watch um, someone's health deteriorate. I think I was so angry during that moment in time that no one had like warned me or I just had no idea what I was in for at all that I, I, I was just very angry during that time. And I feel like so much of why I wanted to write this book was was to really like bear those wounds in a way that I felt like uh, they're, you know, like weren't talked about very often uh, and really go there. But also like, I just really wanted people to believe me. Like I felt like I had endured this like very intense thing. And I, I had this like real sense of like, people have to know that this is like what I went through. Because I, I, I always feel like people don't understand what I went through or something that's like a big part of, I think what I do as, as an artist is like, I'm like driven by that feeling. It's a really good point you make, because I remember when I first discovered your music, you know, we can get it all kinds of different ways these days, but still, even without like liner notes, somehow an element of a story travels with it. And I don't know where it came from, but I was listening to your first record and somehow through the mm. ether, I pick up, this is something that is very personal. This was written when she was caring for her mother who had passed away. And then it becomes part of a nice bio note, you know, that you get asked about or it gets written about. That's not what this is. I mean, this is actually moment to moment um, trauma, horror, you know, and sadness that you experienced. And it's quite different from something that can be just spun off easily in an anecdote about what made a really good record people liked in 2017. Yeah, I feel like, you know, even after writing two albums about grief, it felt like there was so much left unsaid, like, you know, feeling certainly, but, you know, also just the events that sort of unfolded, it was a lot that happened over six months of time. And mm. I was so, you know, overwhelmed and confused for so long that I think it just, it needed to be sort of understood and th through this process. Uh, and so that was a big, a big part of it. But there was also like, I was really excited to write about, you know, joyful moments uh, with my mom and, and even after her death um, that I experienced because I wanted to also have this outlet to like relive those memories that I had with my mom that made my childhood so fantastic. And I think was what led me to kind of turn to food in a refuge and, and sort of figure out like why that was. Your mother is an incredible character uh, in, in the book. She comes completely alive, even when you're writing about her passing. You know, it, it, the, the book, as I keep saying, it, it had me in tears at points, but it also had me laughing. I, I was wondering for people who are listening to this who have not yet read the book, how do you describe your mom? 
how would you describe her now to people who who ask about her? Um, I would say that she was very um, she was effervescent, uh, but she could also be incredibly private and withholding and and sort of stoic. She was very stylish and really into self care and like presentation. She loved like. Uh, she loved QVC products and like keeping a, a very stylish home. And she also loved, um, <laughs> she also lo- not to like associate her only with brands, but the things that like I remember her her fondly are like her. She had a real affection for QVC and TJ Maxx, uh, and she loved it. She loved a deal, and uh, yeah, she just loved um, being like the stylish, lovely woman. I don't know. She had like so much pride. I would say. And one of the parts of the book that, you know, the the first third of the book is really about, I think, you know, you, you tell your own story and your own gro- your history of growing up as a young person in the Pacific Northwest. Your family and career referred to you as famous bad girl, which does <laughs> does sound like a Rihanna album um, <laughs> and really stuck with That's me. Amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, and you have you had a complicated relationship with her that just seemed on the precipice of turning when she became ill was there a moment of hesitation at all in your mind about going home immediately to take care of her? Can you talk a little bit about that thought process and what that was like, particularly where you were in the journey of your relationship with her? I was really surprised, actually, when my my parents kind of revealed to me that they were re- they were really hesitant that I go there because I think they were more concerned about my mom and I potentially arguing than I was. I was convinced that I was going to be a great addition (laughs) from the beginning. And I think that, you know, I was 25. My aunt, her younger sister, had had died of cancer two years before. So having had that experience, I think the reality of cancer and, like, how high the stakes were were very real to me. You know, I, I think I knew from early on that I needed I needed to be there and there was no question. And it was largely because I knew that it, you know, I mean, obviously people know like peripherally like cancer is a, a deadly, it can be like a fatal illness, but because um, someone in our family that I was very close to had already died, mm-hmm. it, I knew it felt very close and real to me and that this could be, um, that she might not survive and I needed to be, I needed to spend every moment with her. I think that that was a big part of it. And also I think being an only child and just feeling like this, I I had always dreaded and also like known that this moment was going to come this like huge role reversal where like I would have to take care of my, one of my parents because I had no siblings to sort of take shoulder that kind of responsibility. So I, I always knew as an only child, especially for my mom, who was like a homemaker and, and you know, my was so much a caretaker. You know, we spent so much time together and, you know, I feel so indebted to her. I knew that I, I wanted I, I would have to step up into that role eventually. I had no idea it would, it would come so quickly, but I knew that this was a, a moment in which I would have to really um, step up and, and be there for her. And that that was something that I wanted to do. Um, but I wasn't you know, I was I, I was honestly taken aback that they were they were hesitant about me coming because I, I I I thought that we were sort of over that completely. I was like a big time like forgive and forget uh, of my my teenage years. 
I, uh, you mentioned being an only child there, you know, there, there are many differences between us and our backgrounds and how we grew up, but that is something that we have absolutely in common. And that was my way into <laughs> some of the emotional aspects of your book yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I think that what sometimes people don't appreciate, I mean, first they're, they just make fun of us for being spoiled or whatever, and that's fine. But the second thing that they do, <laughs> which is fair. I think that, which is absolutely fair. Um, but I think they often lack an appreciation for how binary it is and how closed circuit it can be. You know, that I think that for an only child, you're either in the family or you're outside of the family. There is no, I, I have two daughters now and I realize they have each other and they're adults and that's a mm -hmm. healthy separation. But when you're just mm -hmm. in it, you're usually just kind of in it. And breaking free, even without, you know, specific jarring moments in your life that may cause a break, breaking free is necessary, but also very, very, very challenging. And I think that, I, I guess I'm curious about how and why you, you did break free earlier and how ready you were then to come back because that's something that's on my mind constantly too. You know, it, it, it's out there for me. Both my parents are alive and I think about it all the time. Uh, but I like to not think about it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. It's a horrifying thing to think about. Um, I think if I understand this correctly, I think that, you know, and it was something that I kind of realized in the book, you know, um, a lot of it was kind of just feeling around in the dark to like try to figure out why I ended up th this this way or what exactly my relationship with my mom was like. And I realized, you know, our relationship had a lot to do, obviously, with her being an immigrant parent. Um, but also we like gr I grew up in the woods. I grew up like outside of um, town. I didn't there weren't I didn't have any neighbors. I couldn't like walk to a convenience store or a park. I was just stuck at home. And so I came to sort of realized that my, if, if I wanted to ever turn away from my mom, I would be alone. You know, my dad mm. would be at work, you know, he wouldn't come home until like the late evening. And then if I didn't, if I wanted company, I would, I would have to depend on my mom. So like, if I didn't, you know, it, it was, it was always this sort of like double-edged sword where I simultaneously like wanted her affection, but I also, you know, wanted space. But I think that from a young age, I like realized that I, I had a real, I had very strong, I think, creative impulses from a young age. And a lot of like being a famous bad girl, I think, was like not knowing how to direct that kind of hyperactive energy and or mm. that like level of sensitivity and emotion. I was always like an extremely sensitive person and I just had no idea how to channel that. And so I think a big part of why I began to sort of break out of sort of expectations that my mom had of me was just because she was sort of she sort of stood in the way of like me accomplishing my interests and goals as, as a creative. Um, I think that that was our first sort of point of contention was I just fell in love with music in, in such a strong way. And uh, everything made sense to me around, began to make sense to me when I was 16 in this way that I was like, not, everything that I had been working towards as a student felt so meaningless once I discovered, you know, this thing that, felt like a permanent addition to the world. Like that was my, my sense of purpose made so much more sense. That sounds so <laughs> over uh, rot, but I, I, I truly think that I, when I was that age and I was like such a sensitive, depressed person, like the idea of leaving behind something permanent was the only thing that, that made sense to me, which, which was like creating music at the time. And my mom really uh, was convinced that that was a, dangerous profession that I had to be protected from in a way. Mm. And so I think that that was initially what made me 
want to sort of break out from the family in a way because it, it, that pursuing that made so much sense to me. And I guess like, you know, when time went by and I went to college, our, our relationship naturally kind of healed. My mom sort of let go a little bit and realized that this was maybe something that was going to stick around. And then, you know, naturally, I think in your 20s, um, you it's pretty common to like return to your parents. I, I, I can't remember the episode, but I've been saying this a lot where like, there's an episode of The Sopranos where like Tony Soprano says to Carmela uh, about Meadow, like, you know, oh, mothers and their daughters, don't worry, she'll re- return to you. I feel like that's very much like uh, a real thing that happens in the world. <laughs> and, and, and that's a famously happy family where everybody got along yeah. super well. And uh, <laughs> So I have no notes on that analogy. Um, <laughs> y- y- your book builds to this really beautiful moment where basically your, your mother expresses the thought that she had just never met anyone like you. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is, it's just a beautiful sentiment, you know, and, and it, and it's very freeing where it arrives in the book and it kind of, you know, got me lost in my own head and feelings about how we are born into families and everyone has these, everyone has this crushing weight of expectations about what it's supposed to be. And it makes sense that both parents and children look to points of similarity as anchors because we're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to be in each other's lives. And I, I don't know if this was your own experience with it, but hearing those words even from your mom was really kind of did my head in, you know, that like maybe it's a, it, it's harder because we're looking for ourselves. We want to control, we want to protect, but taking a moment to have distance and appreciate and respect difference is, you know, a lot more, well, it's a very mature form of love, I guess. Yeah. I definitely feel like that was such a major shift that has like stuck with me for so long. Something that she said to me and You know, I think that that was just like, it was like maybe the first step of what I felt like was a real acceptance, you know, of just you're going to do what you're going to do. And I, and I also feel like it was almost kind of an an apology. It was like, you know, I'm, I didn't get it before, you know, and Mm -hmm. I realized that this is like not something that you're going to grow out of. She would never say that, but, uh, you know, that was how I took it. But yeah, even hearing that now, it's like, I do think, you know, my mom was not necessarily like a create, like my mom wouldn't have said, described herself as creative, I don't think. Um, And she was certainly not like an an artist in any way. But I often, I I feel like especially with this book, I've really, I really wanted to investigate, you know, if my mom had been raised in a different environment, like if she had been like given that sort of like same sense of entitlement that I had growing up, like that I really deserved this if she might have pursued um, the creative arts in some way. Because I think that even the things that she was sort of interested in, she was interested in like fashion, interior design and stuff like that. Like, you know, those are things that are easy to write off as like uh, homemaker, like interests or whatever. Uh, But I, I think that, you know, later on she like started taking painting classes. And I, I also, you know, I think naturally, like we were talking about before, like you always like look to like, where did I get this from, from your parents? And my dad is not a creative person at all. And so it's easy to like, kind of like look to my mom is like, is it you? Like, did it come from here? And I feel like sometimes she would say things like that, where it was like real, like, I find that to be so poetic. Like this very like ordinary thing was, was really moving and poetic to me. And and she had this way of like presenting her feelings. I think that were, were like kind of, um, very romantic. <laughs> well, the, the, hearing you talk about her and, and the empathy with which you do it now and trying to figure out the way she was thinking and putting yourself in her shoes, it makes me think of something that happens at the end of the book that was extremely moving. And I, I, I think you can tell me if I'm wrong. I don't, 
I don't think your book is like The Sopranos. I don't think you can spoil it. Um, <laughs> so I hope you don't mind me mentioning yeah, yeah. a scene at the very no, end. No, no. But it's a perfect ending to the book. And it ends at this moment of kind of uh, cultural connection, cross-cultural connection, where um, you are on tour with Japanese Breakfast in Korea, and you're hearing pop songs that your mother and your aunts loved and you're singing karaoke, and it's really a powerful moment of using music not just as an act of self-expression, but of connection, you know? And it, it made me think about how a lot of the music that that I like and that many people like and make in their 20s is really just internal, you know? Like a lot of stereotypical indie or emo music is just about my own self, my own feelings, and how this new record, Jubilee, but also the progression, I think, of the music you've been making has, to me anyway, sounded more externalized, more searching, more more reaching. You know, and I and I wonder if there's not too clumsy an analogy to be made between the the sort of searching empathy that I hear in how your music is developed and in uh, your own life as you went through this experience, understanding your mother better. Absolutely, I I, I that's really lovely of you to say. Um, I, you know, the one thing that I can feel, you know, there's a not to like quote myself, which is really cringy, but. <laughs> There's a line in the book and there's a line on that that shares a line on the record actually which is um when the world divides into two people those who have felt pain and those who have yet to I very much felt that going through that experience and it's uh been something that's really stuck with me. I I tried to write incorporate this more into the book um but I was just so over it when I <laughs> was trying to do it that I, it didn't make it in. But I had a really, you know, moving conversation with um, my mother-in-law and grandmother-in-law after uh, we moved back to the East Coast. And I, you know, I don't know if they had told me this before and it just didn't stick with me. But, you know, they, they sort of opened up to me in this like new way that I don't feel like they would have if I if they didn't know that I had just gone through this loss. Like... My my mother-in-law lost her her brother fell off of um like a college balcony when he was uh in college when they were in college together at Penn State. And uh he passed away and you know she was in her 20s and like he was in his 20s and you know I felt when they told me this story and and the and his grandma was saying like you know I used to cr every, she was a microbiologist and every day like on her way to work she would say I would you know, cry for my son that I had lost. And hearing her say that, like, I felt it so much deeper that like someone else's experience. And like, I felt this like very intense sense of compassion that I had never felt before, where I felt like they were confiding this emotion in me because they knew I had gone through it. And I was able to like feel that experience so much deeper because I had just gone through loss. And I feel that a lot now when, you know, people who have like experienced this kind of pain and trauma are able to like, like really open up to each other a lot easier. I think there's this like immediate sense of like connection that you have. And I feel like you're just able to feel it deeper. And I feel very changed by that experience and and I think it's very much like you know you're opening yourself up to the to the world in this in this new way and even though it's heartbreaking it is it is a nice thing to learn I guess it's so interesting to hear you say that because it, you know at the beginning you were talking about how no one prepared you which I I completely agree with mm. you know you no one tells mm. you about the physical nature of illness or even or even of death and in general I think we don't talk about 
our bodies or what happens and even even in food you know it's it's still, yeah. still very like everything is beautiful it's all for the gram or whatever and then you know maybe those those cheetos, those spicy cheetos were a mistake <laughs> but there's there's that divide what we don't talk about but then what you're speaking about i think is something a little bit even heavier which is you know you you can't talk about what it does to you on a deeper level until you've you've passed through it and then a different yeah, language yeah. opens up to you and and that you know maybe that it maybe we're gaining access to some of that language through the music you've been making. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Was it always the plan to have Jubilee and the book come out uh you know almost on top of one another? Not at all. They were supposed to be quite far away. Um Jubilee was supposed to come out in I think June of 2020 and oh, I had why? finished Did the something rec- happen? <laughs> I finished, the al- <laughs> I finished the album in December of 2019. And mm. then we were going to shoot the music video for the first for Be, Be Sweet in March, mid early March. We were supposed to go to South by. I was like, I had just finished the book or like at least a good. I think I had just turned in my second revision of the book. The album was done. We were on our way. We we're going to go to South by. And, you know, we always have a really great time at South by, which I feel like as a musician, you're not supposed to, but I always do. And then it was canceled. And my cinematographer's shoot in Washington was canceled. And even still, our producer was like, do you think that we're going to be impacted by this, uh, you know, pandemic thing, um, shooting this music video? And I was like, I don't see why it has anything to do with us. Like, why does it have anything to do with us? And then uh, New York went into lockdown. And I remember being like so, there were so many petty things that I was like really upset about not getting to do. One was like, I can't believe there's just going to be like a four-year gap in my discography. <laughs> and um, I, I was really sad that I didn't get to go to Europe for a press. Um, that just feels so absurd to be upset about like a year later looking back. But um, I am glad that we, I'm glad that we wait. We could have moved forward with it, with it, but we were just like, we were right at the precipice where it was cool to pull the plug, I feel like. And mm-hmm. I knew that, you know, so much of the album making process for me has been creating a a sort of accompanying visual world and that not getting to do that was going to be, you know, I was going to miss out on a big like artistic opportunity, I felt like. And also the idea of like performing this album that was supposed to have these like much larger arrangements and um, even the first single is like impossible to kind of play stripped down that it would be my worst nightmare to perform that record in like a solo live stream Zoom environment. So we moved it to October and then we moved it again, I think, to the spring and then we moved it again to June. Okay, I'm scratching my next question, which was, could you play B-Suite right now on Zoom? Um, I I should say, just as a side note, for all the things, those are legitimate losses. I mean, I feel like we all should mourn the small, even the small things that we didn't get to do, but it did give us an incredible EP, a bumper, which you made Mm. with the songwriter from a band I love crying and people should check that out. One of the best things of last year. Um, Thank you. I want to point out something you said. It leads into a question I did have seriously, which is that you always have a good time at South by Southwest. And I want to commend you because uh, before I was doing this, I used to write about music all the time and I would always write interview bands and uniformly all bands complain about touring. Oh, you got to go to Paris. Oh, I didn't see it. Every night is the same. It's, it's the rest stops, the terrible beef jerky lunches, you know, the crappy hotels, the, the lack of sleep. 
the monotony. Oh, it sounds so I, nice. <laughs> but I read your book and you're like, then we got to go to this restaurant where we did these <laughs> incredible things and we drank this specific combination of soju and beer and it re- it resulted in this feeling of ecstasy and this. And, and I'm like, thank God you take advantage of it because I know it's challenging. I know there is monotony to it and you can't control your schedule. But I truly love reading about a musician who's traveling the world and also and just taking advantage when possible particularly of the food in each place that you go. I will say, like, I I don't think I would enjoy tour as much if it weren't for coming into it, like, sort of later on in life. And, like, oh, so... Like, I did a lot of really horrible um, DIY tours for very... Like, unappreciated DIY tours for a really long time. I really paid my dues. And, um, you know, so I know what that lifestyle is like. So even getting to stay like four people in a Holiday Inn is like luxury, like so luxurious, you know? And I'm really lucky that, you know, I I went through a lot of kind of not so great lineups just because it's really, really hard to find the right crew of people. Even like my best friends, if I was with them like for 24 hours a day, like, you know, six weeks at a time, I would kill them. And it has to be like a very specific, you know, perfect like uh, balance of personality um, that I feel like we've really just found uh, in the past three years. And it also really helps that the guitar player is my husband because I toured without him for like many years. And I I definitely hated tour uh, because it's so lonely. It can be so lonely. I remember being, having that experience where like I had a day off in, in Belgium. I think we were in, in Ghent or something. And like I was with my drummer, Craig, and we had the most romantic day, like walking around, seeing like all of these like beautiful architecture. We shared like a fry cone and a park, like on a bench. We got ice cream. And at the end of the day, we were just like, it sucks it's with you. <laughs> you know I mean? like, Poor drummers. You know, it was like, yeah, I mean, maybe both of us felt that way. We were like, oh yeah. man, I mean, this would have been so romantic if it wasn't you. Um, but, you know, it is like such a lonely life. It's, it's true. Like it's hard to appreciate that kind of stuff if you're not with… Um, the people you want to be with and like you're just so lonely all the time. So I am very lucky that I I have my like husband on tour with me to like keep me company. So I, I, I can be really happy wherever I am. <laughs> well, also it speaks to like, I, and I admire this a lot, like you're, you're choosing the opportunities you have, right? Like you, in terms of the music you're making, who you're making it with. And if you're going to do this with your life, um, do it with people you want to be with. You know, it, it there are no have to's, right? There's what you choose to do and and that that seems it is hard reasonable. to remember that yeah yeah I mean I think it is really sad because like I have so many friends who are really talented musicians that hate to tour and like that is the only real option that you have to like pursue you know to to have this as a job and it's like a really painful realization I think for a lot of musicians who realize like I love music but I hate to tour and unfortunately that means like my life as a musician is completely unfeasible it's I've seen a lot of people go through that and and if you don't like touring it's really unlucky and I feel bad for them because I you know so many talented people just hate hate the lifestyle let me pivot from talking about you out in the world to talking about where you've been for the last year, which is presumably home. Um, one of the other best parts of this book, and there are many great parts, but one of the parts that I enjoyed the most and was living vicariously through is near the end when you are sort of teaching yourself to make uh, Korean home cooking dishes that your mother was unable to have. She didn't have time to teach you, and some of the people in her life were not very friendly about teaching you. Uh, and so you're doing it yourself at the end and um, making your own kimchi on the floor of your apartment, et cetera, et cetera. Loved reading all of that. And I was thinking about 
how about the last year when people are home and everybody's Instagramming their bread. Everybody's doing these ridiculous sourdough loaves, <laughs> which are great to a point. So I I don't I, know how people how people make bread. Right, I, I have no idea. It's either, like but incredible. They're, they're very proud of it. I guess they should be. But we started with the Grub Street diet. Have you I seen wanna... like the focaccia? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no. Tell me. I, I'd rather talk focaccia. <gasps> no, I mean I've just seen like the. Have you seen the new focaccia with like the with like the garden designs? Like they have like vegetables that they like arrange in like no. a floral pattern. It's incredible. I don't know how. I tried to make one round of focaccia. And it went so poorly. Who's Bread they? Who are, who are these focaccia gardeners? The people on the. I don't know. My algorithm has really like. <laughs> <laughs> they found you. <laughs> pushed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so my focaccia side, my question is, for the last year, what were you making? Like what, what you mentioned a hot dog phase, presumably you <laughs> moved on from the nacho phase. But I was curious if there were any, and you, failure is welcome here too. But I wondered if, if in the, in the depths of boredom, uh, if you went on any culinary jaunts that you'd like to share with us. Um, yeah, I had like a Middle Eastern dip phase <laughs> where I was like making a lot of like dips for a time. I had like a Spanish tapa face. I love a theme. So I was like really, I really tried to like um, ground myself with a theme. Uh, I also really fell for, um, I really like this guy. Have you seen Headbangers Kitchen? No, I, I, I would be He's nervous amazing. to go there. He's this Indian guy that's like really into metal and like the keto diet. And he also like his dad is like a failed actor. And I just love YouTube pe like personalities where you get to like learn so much about this person's life, like through their cooking. And so, you know, he makes a lot of Indian food. I don't know. How, so I think I was I, I have a deep, shameful secret that I've like I'm really bad at lying and so I can't uh, not talk about it. But I'm also like, as a food person I, and as a like a celebrated like garbage mouth, I am kind of ashamed to say that I got really into like fad dieting when I w during the quarantine. And I think it was because like it was it offered this like weird sense of control where I was yes. like, I'm going to emerge from the pandemic with a six pack. And so I tried like all these weird diets to like get this, maintain the sense of control and like really convince myself I was going to get a six pack. And let me tell you, I'm like a naturally small person. And I really thought that I, you know, if I just put in a little effort, like I would get a six pack. It is so hard. It's like literally, I don't know how anyone gets a six pack. It's literally impossible. But so I had a brief stint with the keto diet for like two weeks. And so I was watching all these like weird keto people on YouTube. And uh, one of them is this guy, who makes like all these keto Indian recipes. <laughs> it's really funny. I really like uh, this is deeply, so I was into that for a while. This is deeply relatable content because I was expecting, of course, okay. like just some fermentation. <laughs> I, like, I, don't want it to, I don't want anyone to know. I, I can't lie. Obviously, the, the best story would have been like, oh, yeah, I was like really into my Korean cooking. It like really helped me through another hard time. And I got really into like I've really mastered kimchi making. And it was the total opposite where I was like, no, I tried to make like keto butter chicken. <laughs> because, no, because as someone who is desperate for an inherited food tradition and all I have is my grandmother's not great matzo balls that I've been trying to like treasure, <laughs> but like make better. You know, when, I, I, when I'm reading your book and then your mother is ill and there is a perfectly bland pine nut stew that you describe with this beautiful detail. And I'm like, I, w I want access to a world where there is a dish for this because there's generations of people who maybe aren't feeling well or going through something. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. of course, here's the here's X for Y, you know? And it's so, yeah, yeah. it's beautiful well, and inspiring. Lots of soup is kind of like that, no? A hundred percent. I'm very yeah. soup-centric, obviously. I, yeah. I wasn't even dreaming of <laughs> going <soup> beyond. <laughs> the, 
that's my zone. But uh, so I, obviously, I was I was seeking a little bit, and I think it's actually very uh, it, it's it's relatable content, as they say. In the, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I was just trying to get a six pack, and it didn't didn't happen for me. I had a couple. I mean, I I did try to make some Korean things that I had never uh, made before, but they were they didn't turn out well. So I was kind of like, all right, it's time. To do something. I tried to make um, this like fermented crab uh, called Kangjang Kejang, which I talk a little bit about in the book. Mm -hmm. It's like soy sauce crab. Turned out terrible. And I had like, you know, it's an intense process. You have to like dismember a live crab. <laughs> and like, uh, it didn't even taste good. So I, felt, I just felt really bad about it. I think it's okay. I think a lot of people got six packs during the pandemic, but from the bodega. I think that that was a <laughs> very common thing. Um, I You've been so generous with your time. We should, we should wrap up there. But I... I, I, I hope we could talk again sometime because I, I love the record. I love the music. And obviously this is more focused on the book, which is tremendous. And I Thank I, you I, I so do, much, Andy. I, I really also want to end. I feel like for people who are new fans of you learning about you now, uh, there is a quote from the most important document in your recorded history, which is the Grub Street Diet, where you say, I want to do the most at all times, which I think is in context <laughs> to the aforementioned garbage mouthness. But I take it as uh, more related to what we might see from you next in terms of music or film or book. Uh, and, I, and I think it's exciting. So thank you for this. And good luck with getting out of the house and bringing this music and this book to the world. Thank you so much. This was so fun, Andy. Really, truly. <laughs>